Welcome to Music and the Church with Sarah Bariza, a monthly podcast about thinking bigger in our faith, our ministries, and our churches. I'm Dr. Sarah Bariza, a writer and musician, and today I am joined by the Reverend Dr. Alicia Lola Jones to talk about her new book, Flaming, the Peculiar Theopolitics of Fire and Desire in Black Male Gospel Performance. Alicia, I am so glad you're here. Great to be here. Thank you for thinking of me and and making sure that we have this awesome conversation. Yeah, I, I was, when, I, when I realized your book was coming out, I was like, we have to talk about this because I've been seeing you at conferences for, oh, I don't know, maybe six or seven yeah. years. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, we, we stick our head down into our project and then the next thing we know it's like here and, oh, mm-hmm. like we have to, we have to like share with people, you know, what mm-hmm. we've been holding on to and and protecting. So um, I appreciate you wanting to have a conversation and to share with others this work that I've been dealing with for quite some time. Yeah, and it's and it's wonderful work. And it's uh, like so much of musicology and ethnomusicology, it's focused in a particular area, but that doesn't mean it's only relevant to that particular mm-hmm. area. So for our listeners who are like, oh, well, I don't do gospel music or I don't do whatever, you know, it's a, it's focused in an area, but there's so much here mm-hmm. for us to learn from. Mm-hmm. So much. Oh, that's to important from. to me. Thank you. That's so important to me. Thank you. I'm wondering before we dive in talking about the topics of your book, could you introduce yourself a little bit sure. to everyone who's listening? Sure. Well, I'm Alicia Lola Jones. I'm from Washington, D.C., um, the D.C. area proper, Northeast D.C. I'm the daughter of two preachers raised in the Word of Faith tradition, which uh, might often be associated with televangelism. And there's a nuance to it. I'll say that my dad was a journalist, and so we were already a part of the media, uh, the mediascape, if you will. And in, in many ways, that aesthetic resonated with my parents. And they, uh, for years, pastored a multicultural, multilingual congregation. And through that experience, I really learned the power of music, the politics of worship leadership, um, and even the sort of specific uh, positionality or identity they held as African-American pastors in these realms of of more charismatic worship. And so I, I'm really excited to be able to talk about that intersection of identity in this political moment where evangelicalism looks a particular way to folks. Uh, and I'm happy to talk about the complexities of that conversation that have been going on for quite some time. A lot of things there. Um, I think our listeners might also be interested to know that you're writing as an ethnomusicologist, which is a particular academic discipline. You're also writing as someone who's an ordained person, although you're not, this is not a theological book as a, it's a a theological book, but not a, not writing as a theologian. Yeah. Um, But you, you have these certain positions in relationship to what you're writing about. Yeah. So I'm trained as a musician. I studied voice performance and while studying voice performance, I was able to study pedagogy and we can call it the science of singing um, with Richard Miller, who wrote the book, The Structure of Singing. It's, I've heard it described as being worth its weight in gold in terms mm-hmm. of the, the analysis that he has done to think about how we produce sound. And from there, I went on 
to study uh, liturgy and theology at uh, Yale at the Divinity School and the Institute uh, for Sacred Music. And while there, I encountered uh, four parents in ethnomusicology and liturgy. Uh, Melanie Burnham, my first year, she is uh, a professor emerita at my current institution, uh, Indiana University, um, a gospel music scholar. Uh, and then uh, I studied with Melva Costin, who is a liturgist out of Atlanta, uh, Professor Emerita there. And then Phil Bowman, my last year there, um, who is a professor at UChicago. And I ended up doing graduate research in, at UChicago, uh, interweaving uh, those previous paths as a performer, as a theologian, liturgist. And through ethnomusicology, I'm actually able to draw upon skills such as participant observation as a musician, interviewing people like a journalist, and using those tools to make analysis about culture, history, and how people relate through music. So while I'm evaluating a musical scene that is religious, I don't make a theological or ethical argument, which as you know, it's difficult for folks who are believers um, like myself, like yourself, to understand what that move is um, from a researcher's perspective. It's very tricky, I think, for people to understand who aren't in that oh, yeah, Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and especially with a topic that's marked as taboo, like gender and sexuality for Christians, or particularly conservative Christians. The assertion uh, by the scholar is usually, you know, what folks are trying to figure out. What, what is your stand for Christ? Mm -hmm. And for me, the stand is sharing people's stories. That a lot of what the miseducation has been has been because people have not heard folks' stories. So I'm excited to share some stories. I'm excited to help people think about what they assume about people and uh, that this could actually be a hindrance when we use assumptions as opposed to hearing how folks come to the table, come to God, come to Christ. Um, and I have to say, like the folks where I'm from, who are part of what we might call charismatic or Pentecostal uh, Christianity, they actually are interested in these topics and want to learn and want to get understanding. And so it's, it's been humbling to get the stories and to share them. I'm thinking of something you said at the end of your book. My agenda is to prompt a reflection on the strategies by which believers may better excel in love. Yeah, yeah. Um, and thinking about that in terms of all the stories that you shared, yeah. you can get the sense of that over the course of the book that like by sharing this, you're showing here are ways that you can love your neighbors, hmm. even by, by better understanding who your neighbors are. Yeah. Well, the book follows um, the narrative. There are various ways that um, musicologists and particularly ethnomusicologists do the research that they do. They can follow a particular music scene or a, a figure, a musician. Uh, they can follow a particular moment in time. I decided to follow a narrative uh, surrounding the trope of the flamboyant choir director. There's, there's often speculation and surveillance of uh, men as they perform and lead worship. And what I have found that stemming from these stereotypes have been 
very charged moments that could mean the expulsion of a particular ministry gift from their uh, post in a church because they are thought to be gay, or it could mean a person being corrected or disciplined um, because of charges or accusations of sexual misconduct. And what has been striking to me has been those moments where, uh, for example, uh, self-identified gay men will say that they were taught in a church setting that God did not love them. And that's striking to me to be taught that God did not love you because of your sexual orientation. And as a result, uh, the attempts of suicide um, and even turning away from the faith are actually um, indictments on how we are loving, in my estimation, that folks would actually turn away from uh, the faith tradition or God because of what has been mediated to them uh, through ministry leadership. As a theologian, as a minister, I feel like that's a challenge to me to really investigate. Are we really doing our job well? Are we really being the hands and feet of God to folks who are supposed to be made in God's image? And how do we deal with people with whom we may not agree? How do we find a way to connect with folks even when we have differences in how we interpret the text or deploy the text? That to me is, is um, really examining how we love. Could you tell us more about the general scope of your book and yeah. maybe some of the stories in there? Yeah. So following the, the trope of the flamboyant choir director, I, through seven chapters and introduction and conclusion, um, look at different aspects of worship leadership or performance. For example, um, I start off the book by talking about this competency called setting the atmosphere which is a way that people refer to a worship leader's ability to usher in, usher us as a, a, a corporate body into the presence of God and in a way that we can easily perceive God's presence in our midst. And that value of a worship leader readily being able to do that is one of the attributes that people are protecting as they think about a person's spiritual vitality. Um, that looks like in, uh, in gospel music settings, which for me, gospel music is an industry term that has been used to catch all of the genres within Black sacred music. It's a shorthand. The first chapter assesses this idea of setting the atmosphere by thinking about the idea of deliverance, which is a way of remedying when a person is not, is jeopardizing their ability to set the atmosphere because they might have a feminine masculinity or um, might have, might identify themselves as uh, homosexual. It may, they may become a candidate for deliverance just because people suspect them to be queer. Either way, it's a way of saying that in their performance, there is a spiritual distraction for the people gathered. And so I look at that, you know, how does that manifest in the verbal and nonverbal communication of their fans 
or of the congregants who are experiencing their ministry. I also found that men who have a particular range are scrutinized a little bit more. So men who sing higher <laughs> um, are scrutinized a little bit more. I was so surprised in reading that. I was like, what? what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are so, there are so many. Gendering their vocal folds. <laughs> yes, yes. Their sound is being um, scrutinized for being too woman-like. Um, and so in the second chapter, I look at the sort of provocative realm of the countertenor as a worship leader, which is a rare, rare vocal designation in Western art music training. Uh, what happens when folks who are formally trained as a rare vocal vocalist, when they pivot between more than one cultural context? And it's, it's been really interesting to, to kind of converse with those men who are countertenors, but then also to hear that folks, uh, there are many women who are attracted to men who are countertenors and don't find any, any aspect of it off-putting, while many of the men, you know, wonder how are they heard by, by women. The third chapter, I believe, is a chapter entitled Pole Dancing for Jesus, which is a longer um, version of an article that I released some years ago in a volume on esotericism and mysticism. But in that chapter, I talk about gesture, movement, dance, and how people monitor the gender expression through dance to get a sense of a person's queerness. And this case study is of a man who uses pole fitness to um, deal with his longing for home and had no idea uh, a priori his uh, self-taught uh, exploration of pole fitness that it was associated with pole dancing. The next chapter after that, chapter four, deals with a case study in hypermasculinity, so gospel go-go. Then chapter five deals with the ways in which coded communication can occur within gospel music where people can tell you that they are queer. Um, and if we are unwilling to converse with people across cultural, social, socio-cultural lines, we may have the information right in front of us. And really, um, it can be an open secret if we are unwilling to converse with people and get out of our comfort zones and, and learn their experiences. After that, I talk about silence in chapter six or unspokenness. Mm, that was... Uh, the, the word unspokenness. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's <a laughs> like, whole... oh, this, it's silence, but it's not silence. Right. right. It is a way of reserving yourself, preserving yourself. Um, I think of it also as a ministry of presence in contested spaces. After that, I circle back and I think about the sort of performance of heterosexuality how it can be a construct in and of itself, you know, and how do we conform to a social norms in order to maintain uh, respectable positions in our churches. And then I round off by just um, talking about where, what next, what next. It seems like throughout there's this thread of like a undercurrent that you're discussing about anxiety about male participation in church, specifically on the part of lay people on the part of the congregation. And you make the point that the pulpit is a gendered male space in most churches. 
and instrumental music or instrumental performance is also gendered male, but the choir is gendered female, the vocal music is gendered female. And then what fascinated me is that the congregation is gendered female. And of course, throughout the New Testament, the church is the bride of Christ, Jesus is the bridegroom. So we, we have this like historical understanding of just Christianity in general, being gendered, Christians in general, being gendered feminine. But I was fascinated that like, that, that, um, that this conversation around black male vocalists who are in leadership positions would be like set in bounds by thinking about like what this means for lay people and mm -hmm. concerns about are men participating in the church or not? Are they coming to church? That kind of thing. Right, right. And of course there are exceptions to the rule. There are churches. My mother's a pastor, right? But she knows as a woman when she's entering a particular region, geography, Mm -hmm. um, or when she's entering a particular denomination, that there are ways she will or will not be acknowledged as a senior pastor. So there is this overriding understanding of how gender plays and folks choose their battles. My, I have observed my mother choose her battle at, at significant moments like funerals of family members and or, or parishioners who have migrated elsewhere and not being recognized as their their spiritual advisor or companion. Having said that, yeah, these places seem to be imagined as um, gendered spaces. You know, um, I, so many men have told me who are vocalists that they have gotten pulled aside because people were concerned about aspects of their life that were very private. And there are those who said that has never happened to me. And it has fallen along these sorts of roles, um, that of the vocalist versus that of the instrumentalist, unless they do something explicitly to traverse um, what is assumed about um, who is drawn to those areas of ministry. Um, and I'm seeing in the literature about Black religiosity that there is assumption. There is an assumption that there are folks who fit a particular orientation being drawn to choral and vocal leadership, solo roles. It's a stereotype. It is a stereotype. Um, but as a vocalist, I'm interested in how these domains work, that space matters, that function matters, that compensation matters. And as we look at the nuance of these arrangements, we can find out even about um, the inequities that women experience as well. Yeah, that's one thing that you brought up a number of times about compensation and power and people having power to lead but not being a part of the compensated people. That would be the vocalists. And <laughs> yeah. Yes. I was at, uh, I believe it was the Hawkins Seminar, which shout out to the Hawkins Seminar. Uh, we were expecting to gather in the spring, but uh, because of COVID-19, we had to rearrange, um, but early on and getting acquainted with them and now leading their education initiative, I, I shared with them, you know, you have world-class musicians like the recording artist, Melanie Daniels uh, Walker, who has to advocate for her conversation. And I'm like, but this woman not only is a virtuosa, she also is expected to give people words of encouragement that are hopefully theologically sound and that 
give coherence to what musically is occurring in the worship experience. And yet she is not referred to as a musician in the same way that the uh, keyboardist is, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of terminology. Terminology does a lot of work for helping us with bias and value. And so I challenge people, I say she's a vocal musician and that's an instrumentalist. Both are musicians, mm-hmm. both. Yeah. And if you are expecting her to be consistent, that means that you think of her as a musician. And if you want her to be consistent, you have to give her the same sort of incentive that you give to an instrumentalist. And it's actually a revelation to people. <laughs> I wonder, do you think, because this is, this is not just in African-American churches. This is, Absolutely. This is, this is yeah. all. But Absolutely. I'm wondering if we're thinking specifically in the church context, like, is there something here around the congregation is gendered female, the choir, the vocalists are gendered female, and are then not compensated? And I'm thinking, of, you know, of course, in, in the congregation, you have so many volunteers who are the engine of the church. Yeah. And on one hand, you can't pay every volunteer because well, this is how the church runs. Right. Like, we don't, you know, but on the other hand, you know, I've, I've sometimes heard in some circles like, well, well, we don't pay the Sunday school teachers. Why should we pay the pianists? And I'm like, well, because the pian- Sunday school teacher didn't have to be studying this since they were six um, and go to college to learn how to do this. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, livelihood. But again, you know, we pay for what we value. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there, I, I look at the congregations that do this this work right. I look at congregations like Greater Allen Cathedral or Trinity United Church of Christ that are Protestant congregations headed by senior pastors who understand that the keyboardists, the vocalists, and the Christian education personnel should all be compensated Mm -hmm. because you expect for them to be consistent and to move the congregation forward to challenge and sharpen the congregation. And yes, I know people don't have limited, limitless resources, especially in this pandemic moment, we are reevaluating our resources, mm-hmm. but you can make it worth their while. You mm-hmm. can connect them with folks. We know that senior pastors are the brokers of relationships and resources. So there are ways you can, you can make it valuable for a person. I mean, feeding the people who work with you and for you is a blessing. You know, giving shelter to people who work with and for you is a blessing. So there are, people can be inventive when they need to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think sometimes it's about the the thought behind it and not necessarily like the actual resources an individual congregation Absolutely. Has. You know, it's, it's like about the, the intent and the, the value giving. Yeah, and meeting the need. Meeting a need. Can you meet a need, please? Can you wipe away a bill? Even if it's my gas bill. Just... Mm-hmm. You know, or can, do you have access to gift card? I will take your gift card, whatever it is, you know, as long as it's, it's in good faith, it's with character and integrity. I think people are willing to work with folks. Yeah. Can we talk more about queerness and uh, use the expression same gender lovingness in, in this space of gospel music making? And I'm thinking, I'm thinking a lot about how, you mention a lot the presence of God, and on one hand, it seems like this is a negative, mm-hmm. or perceived as a negative, like, oh, if you have a queer music director, someone who comes across as queer, this is perceived as a, a, 
a distraction. And yeah. then I'm also seeing at the same time, I'm like, but it almost seems like a necessity. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like it's part of the package. This is, yeah. this is part of being in the presence of God in these Pentecostal services. Right, right. And so this is where the don't ask, don't tell arrangement comes in. Ah. Uh. Um, there's this moment where one of my informants sat in the car with me after we talked for like three hours and we were listening to a gospel radio station and a very famous, I would call classic gospel song came on by a person who people assume is gay. Um, many of the black men used homosexual or same gender loving, um, more than gay or queer because there's an entire politics around the use of gay, which is associated with a sort of white middle-class experience, a dominant cultural experience and similar with queer. But he was just like, it's unmistakable the presence of God in this person's music. Like, why does it even matter who he loves? Why does it, we know that when we hear this music, we immediately go in. And so to me, that suggests it's a human preoccupation. Oh, that we would just be kind of like concerned about other people. Yeah. When I, I cannot recall the time that this person's music has been shared and folks did not immediately, you know, enter into a sort of reverential posture, a contemplative posture, or that I didn't see the signs of transcendence, you know, of uplift and when, when hearing this particular person's music. So then why must we know and then chastise this person for being queer? Why might they be at risk of losing their status as a significant musical figure? Because we now know that they identify as gay outside of the sanctuary. It seems so tricky to me because, you know, this is, this is not the area that I work in. I'm really looking at this from the outside and it seems like I want this from you, but I don't, I don't want all of you. Oh yeah. But I want this part of you that does. Oh yes. Oh, that's the thing that really challenged me theologically. You know, as a black woman, I know that people consume my culture, my labor, unapologetically and thanklessly, you know? And so I, as I think of the misogyny or massage noir that the men have said, they feel as though they have experienced as men who have been queered and resemble womanhood in in their um, involvements. I'm like, I can see how that is just not cool to be tapped into for your musical gifts. And yet you can't, you can easily be stripped of your dignity and status should people find out um, who you spend your time with or who you built a life with, an entire life with, you know? It seems unfortunate and disingenuous. Mm -hmm. It seems so disingenuous to take their musical product, you know, and to be taken there, whatever there is for you, but you can't be kind to them should you find out this detail. This detail that you probably suspect, but you don't want to ask. My God, most people, when I ask, they're like, oh yeah, I think so. And then I'm like, well, what would you do if they said so? They were just like, I don't know. Wait, you, I asked you because you clearly respond to their ministry. And we all have a sense that this person is likely. So why, I don't get it. (laughs) 
I don't get it. And I say this as a person who remains a part of community, you know, but I, I want us to be, I want us to really like think about how our own biases play a role in our practice. Mm-hmm. And it's not just black and white. It is across gender expression. It is across ability, which I come for ability in the first chapter, how um, speech impediment is something that is deciphered, you know, to see if a person is, is queer or not. That's an ability. So yeah, bias, bias can be big and small, big and small. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me how it's tied to the economics Mm-hmm. Like how we're thinking about people's livelihood, um, sometimes within a local congregation is like the minister of music, that kind of thing in a mm-hmm. particular congregation or someone who's um, more, more like a touring artist and that's how they're making their living. And, and the difficulty of like being oneself in that kind of space, if this is how you're making your living. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I don't think it's specific to African-American churches. I mean, mm-hmm. You're I've right. worked with plenty of gay men who are Catholic organists. I mean, right. You know, like this is, this is, this is the world, right? And it seems really, really tricky to be a musician in, in those kinds of setting. I mean, what, I don't know what else to say. Like, it just seems really, really tricky. Absolutely. Because um, it's, it's not even, it's not even about, oh, well, you know, I, I have this certain personality trait. This is like so integral to who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to say like, well, if, this integral part of me is not, is not allowed here and I can't have a job if it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well, in addition to sexual orientation, uh, you know, we talk in music research about performancing performances against something. Mm-hmm. And so in the chapter on gospel go-go, um, I talk about performances against this, conception of queerness so performances of hyper masculinity and men who are trying and which scholars like richard pitt would say is what is the masculine that is being made hyper in these contexts it's it's masculinities are often imagined and i'm not advocating for a particular masculinity but i want to know what's at work in people's imagination like what are you striving toward and i mention that because to disallow men to be soft, to be caring or nurturing, to disallow them these attributes is a violence to themselves and to mm-hmm. us as women. Yeah. You know, to say a man cannot be soft in his gestures or in his, his uh, persona is a disservice. I love that my fiance is nurturing. I love that he has a tender heart toward women and men and gender non-conforming people it shows his pastoral capacity so why would why would um we allow the idea of effeminacy to be off-putting which i don't i resist the I, the term effeminacy um there's even some racial um, connotations of effeminacy that i lift up in chapter one where effeminacy was a term that was deployed in colonialism to refer to uh, Africans as the lady race. And so it not only was placing on them a feminine role or a submissive role, but it was submissive to white masculinity. And it was also um, a site for sexual violation, which I know folks don't like to talk about it. But in this moment of seeking healing across races, we got to talk about how sex being um, 
a part of the slave trade um, actually um, introduced some really traumatic memories that still need to be exercised. Yes. Um, confessed as well as, you know, called up and, and shed. And so as a result of that, we've kept this sort of terminology, this freighted ter- terminology, and have, have named men who have a feminine masculinity um, as effeminate as though being woman-like is a bad thing. I'm concerned about being called effeminate, and I'm also concerned about women who call men effeminate, because to do so is an internalized sexism. Mm-hmm. It is to say that to be like me is bad. But yep. do we do this with women? Do we say that to be man, man, man-like is bad in the same way that being effeminate is thought to be bad? I don't see the same thing. We might use the term butch, but it doesn't seem like an insult in the way that um, being like a woman is, being less than a man is. Actually, I've heard women in ministry say that they become man-like in order to protect themselves. So it is constructed as um, positive in that regard. This is making me think, maybe this is a tangent, but I'm, I'm thinking about uh, who we imagine God to be. And I, oh, I yeah. think in most of the churches that you're writing about, God is imagined as a man with yeah. masculine pronouns. And yeah. is God not soft and nurturing? And I'm, I, This is the question. Like when we look at the text, when we look at, you know, the ancient text, and even when we look at the attributes of God, there's so much there that is far more imaginative when we really surrender to it, the imagery you know, the many-breasted one, um, that's a nurturing, mm-hmm. um, motherly imagery. The mother hen with her chicks. Yes, there's wisdom. Wisdom is um, constructed as uh, the feminine, the, the, the divine femininity mm-hmm. of God. Yeah. And so I think in the pole dancing for Jesus chapter, as well as chapter six, I delve into, you know, even the idea of, Shekinah, um, or Shekinah, as we say in, in, in my circles, that is a grammatically feminine um, expression of the spirit of God descending among the people. And so if, if that imagery is so popular among at least gospel fans, that's also the invitation to have the, the woman-like attributes or the feminine attributes of God spread among us, you know? So yeah, there is a querying that is being prompted in our very language and our very Judeo-Christian heritage. So, and I will be the first to admit that I struggled with inclusivity in liturgical language until I listened to the composition by Bobby McFerrin of the Psalm 23 composition uh, where he constructs uh, the shepherd as a woman and the trinity as a feminine uh, uh, trinity. It's, it changed my life and it, it actually made me experience a reflection of, of a, a feminine God, um, which we know that God in the Hebrew or in the ancient text um, is genderless. But I guess that might be for another conversation. Yeah. <laughs> as, as we wrap things up, are there any things that you want to add? To this yeah. So I know this, this text does a lot of heavy lifting. It introduces people to gospel music uh, 
a genre of music that I love, an experience that I love, a people that I love. And as a believer and as an ordained faith leader, I, I consider it my duty to be faithful to God and, and make sure that we are doing the work to receive people well as we perform and preserve our music. And that means critical affirmation. That means analyzing as well as celebrating, that both can be done. Um, and my hope is that um, folks uh, will do the self-examination, the homework, that um, my brethren will see a reflection of themselves, um, that women will see a way to connect with the resemblances and experiences, and that faith leaders will adopt this sort of text and resource to do the deep diving that we are doing in, in this uh, U.S. landscape along racial, gender, um, and um, sexual orientation lines, ability lines, all of these identities, we are now looking at closely, really, how are we connecting with people in meaningful ways? And, and I really look forward to the conversations that will be prompted by Flaming. Thank you so much. Can you <laughs> let us know where we can find you online? Sure, sure. My website is dralicia.com. Um, you can easily find my social media uh, outlets through dralicia.com. Uh, you can find me. Generally, my handles are Dr. Alicia Lola Jones on Facebook. Uh, IG is Dr. Alicia L. Jones and the same on Twitter. Um, so some variation. Uh, you know, on Facebook, it was hard to get Dr. Alicia Jones, <laughs> but I'm easy to access on those platforms. And I look forward to conversing with you guys further. And I want all the listeners to know, I'll have a link to Flaming in the show notes, um, but it's also available wherever you are going to find books. And unlike so many academic books, this is actually an affordable and readable book. Yeah. Uh, you can get it on Kindle for an affordable price. You can get it in paper, yes. which that's, I want to point it out because it's not a given for academic yeah. books. Sometimes you're like, I don't really have $130 to spend. Yeah, um, yeah. Nook book, I think. <laughs> is that one? Nook? On Barnes and Noble, it's like Kindle. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, so go out and get get yourself a copy. Please. It's a really good book. Please, thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Yeah, I really absolutely. appreciate it. Thank you so yeah. much. You can find show notes for this episode at musicandthechurch.com, where you can also find lots of resources, including my weekly newsletter and podcasts for church staff getting to nimble. If you've enjoyed this show, please share it with your colleagues. The best way for them to find it is by word of mouth. If you'd like to get in touch, send me an email at musicandthechurch at gmail.com. I'll be back next month with another episode of Music and the Church with Sarah Bariza. <laughs>